0: All right, take two. Um, everybody, sit down. Take your seats. We have a, a very serious topic today about um, uh, just a man who did everything. A man who did everything, when really his life's trajectory from a young age could have been nothing. It could have been an it's early President death.
1: Forrest Gump is who it is.
0: Yeah, he is. He's historical. Forrest Gump. Uh, that very apt comparison that came from the gentleman sitting to my right. Uh, he is the bull to my moose.
1: Um, he you know also, you know that it's the same animal, right? I don't think so.
0: Bold, I've seen a bull
1: and I've seen a moose I, and I a don't. bull moose is. It's
0: a male moose. It's a male moose. But still, yes. I think it, I think he meant both of them. I don't think he did. Um, yeah. I can tell you he
1: didn't. We'll get into it. I,
0: I, he likes to, uh, stop, drop, set him down and open up shop.
1: Oh. oh. No. Oh. That's how rough riders roll. Bingo. I'm not even gonna lie to you. I thought about that drive-in like two days ago. Do you think that's where DMX get? It's it's obviously where DMX got the name Rough Riders. Right? I don't think so. <laughs> really?
0: I don't think DMX don't think was in Teddy is Roosevelt. History?
1: No, no. R. I. P. DMX.
0: Yeah. Um, that brilliant man sitting to my right. That's Professor Chris. Oh shucks. I am Professor Adam, and we are going to jump into a guy who I I mean I just didn't realize that it was going to be so much information. Um, just to get it out of the hat, or to get it, pull it out of the hat, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Uh, this is going to be part one of a two-parter, because Teddy Roosevelt was a larger-than-life He's figure. too much man for one episode. Fuck yeah, dude. Way too much man for one episode. He's a, a guy who I just, I don't know. I, I knew that he was a big deal. We've gone over him and a bunch of other topics. He but has to a,
1: He has like... I can't compare him to, like, a Paul Bunyan-esque, like, folklore figure. Mm -hmm. Like, you know that he exists. It's very, very non-contested that this man exists. But, like, so many of the things he did, you're just like, come on. Like, that's too much for one guy to have sandwiched in this life. And then you're like, no, there were, like, people there. And there were witnesses. And then he wrote books about it. And
0: Not to mention, technically, he wasn't a two-full-term president. No. So he didn't even have a full eight years to do all the shit he did as a president.
1: His time as the president and his presidency were the least interesting things about Ooh. Teddy Roosevelt.
0: I Maybe it's my politics boner that I get, but Teddy's time in the White House. We're going to talk a lot about it. He did some pretty fucking we cool are, stuff. But if you
1: compare that to the other, just like the other life that he lived outside of that. I still think it's it's more... Impre- We've had presidents. Yes, he did accomplish a lot as a president. But what he did outside of the presidency and even kind of like politics, like, it's two lives. It's two full lifetimes.
0: But I think his...
1: why we have to split it up into two. We got to split yeah. it up into pre-President Teddy and then President and Post-President Teddy. His life, his first life
0: outside of office... I think really made his second life what it was. I think he took everything that he had learned from the outside. He kind of was like what I wish every rich person would be like, Yeah, just because he grew up in wealth. He grew up in privilege. Uh, We'll talk about his grandparents and all that fun stuff, but he could afford to do all of these crazy wild things and get so much input and knowledge. And he wasn't, like, it, it's not all rich person stuff. He no. was out there fighting in, in,
1: uh, fighting in bars. It's some of the stuff that, as a rich por- person, it's very easy for him. It affords him an ease in which to do it. Yeah. Um. But before we get too far into Teddy, because we're going to have to take it way back, just a reminder, guys, rate, review, subscribe. We love those five-star reviews. They get us a little horny. Um, and without further ado... Let's get into the old lion, T.R. Teddy Roosevelt. us back to a time when america was young were we i mean yeah if you're going back as far as when klaus von rosenfeld immigrated in 1638 okay sometime yeah. sometime between 1638 and 1649 um this guy It's crazy to think, you know, when they say, like, you know, they bought Manhattan from the Native Americans for, like, a handful of beads and some blankets Mm, and stuff like that. Bullshit. There was also a time when Manhattan was just, like, open land. It was just an island. But it was part of New Amsterdam, which Mm -hmm. is what New York was originally called. So you get Klaus in there, bought a 50-acre farm in what's now Midtown Manhattan, the site of which the Empire State Building is also built on.
0: You can't really picture a big, sprawling manor in the middle of New York. just a couple of them dotted around. Yeah. Yeah, like It it just doesn't make any sense to think that everywhere those buildings are now, that shit was just land
1: that people owned. Yeah. And that's one great way to make a fortune. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely having that. Also, I believe he did start, it might not have been Klaus, but at some point the Roosevelt's do get into banking Mm -hmm. and create what will be known then as Chase Bank. Yep. Chase Bank, um, the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA,
0: was started, I believe, by Klaus. I think it was... was
1: Oh, it might have been, yeah. I
0: think that was Klaus. Uh, The Museum of Natural History, I do believe... was Teddy
1: Sr. Okay. And then the Museum of... You didn't say Modern Art, did you? MoMA, I think, was Klaus. The Museum of Modern Art. Okay, There was another museum that Teddy Sr. um, had opened as well. Okay. And with the Roosevelt's, so you have, you know... We're familiar with Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. We also have Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We also have Eleanor Roosevelt. So I'm not – we can't even get into that. I mean,
0: yeah, I think there were fifth cousins, FDR
1: and Teddy. Yep. Eleanor and FDR were fifth cousins once removed. I think something if that helps.
0: I thought it was FDR and Teddy, maybe, is what I was looking for. FDR and Teddy, I think, were, like, fifth
1: cousins, weren't they? FDR and Eleanor were Are, also fifth or sixth cousins.
0: Well, uh, yeah.
1: I mean, so it whenever, made the
0: paperwork easy
1: yeah. to not have to change your last name. Well, and this is one of those things when you hear about, like, the Rockefellers, or, like, the founding, the big families founding the nation. I always think of Wedding Crashers. The, the DuPonts? The, and yeah. the What's Yeah. Uh, what's the last name for uh, Walken's character? Secretary. Ah, oh, Fuck. He's the secretary of the treasury. I can't remember Clear. The clear The, clear is the lodges. Two great American families. So we have the Roosevelts, who at some point break up into the Oyster Bay Roosevelts, and then what was the other side? Uh, weren't the Pierponts in there or the the DuPonts?
0: There was somebody I could have. Sw- oh no, that's. I'm thinking of J.P. Morgan. He
1: he ties into this story early or later. So you have these two different Roosevelt families who basically branch off and are basically successful as kind of like the, one of the founding, mem- you know, founding families or kind of like founding, I guess you would consider them dynasties back then, like early dynasties. It's American dynasties. Yeah, I would exactly. say that's a pretty good comparison. And so they do establish, you know, a lot of wealth here. So Teddy Sr. marries Martha Bullock. And Martha Bullock came from a Southern family. I'm not sure how big they were, but I'm guessing if she married Theodore Roosevelt Sr. with his, higher, you know, where he's at in the hierarchy, she also has to come from a rich family. And this comes into play because we right now are pre-Civil War. Uh, It's so hard to think that we still...
0: Like this was pre-Civil War. Teddy's born pre-Civil War, but he still has so much of an impact today. And like seeing the story, that feels like a million years ago, but really it wasn't that long ago. Which means really the whole the the war that we had wasn't like it's not recent memory, but it wasn't that long ago.
1: Especially not here, because he's six years old, essentially when I think the war ends, when the Civil War ends.
0: Yeah, he's born October twenty seventh, eighteen fifty eight. Didn't know that he didn't like the name Teddy. It was
1: the... Oh, it wasn't T. It was T.D.
0: Remember T.D. was the
1: it? nickname. He didn't like that. Did he not like Teddy? Either? No, he didn't like Teddy. He liked T.D. Oh, Okay. So
0: he liked TD, he liked going by TR, he really liked going by Theodore, which is just always a
1: mouthful. The Hyde Park Roosevelt's for the other side. It was the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's, the Hyde Park Roosevelt's, so like the two...
0: They just had like a falling out and moved across the island just from just each other? they
1: off and one moved one way and he's like, hey, which Roosevelt are you?
0: Huh, interesting.
1: Maybe that's how
0: FDR and Eleanor met up and didn't realize it. A family reunion, yeah.
1: <laughs> Big family reunions. Um, so... Theodore Roosevelt, or let's just call him, you know, Teddy senior, he, his profession was just almost like a full on philanthropist full on rapist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A full on philanthropist, which was kind of rare back then because it was all about running the businesses for your families at this point. So just to have somebody that's basically not maybe earning money for the family because you've got so fucking much of it, but now is using that money to then give back and develop the community. And that, like, inspires... I think that has... That's got to be the single biggest inspiration for Teddy Jr.'s mindset, right? Yeah. Teddy
0: Jr. had a... Uh, he had a lot of very interesting hobbies that we'll talk about, but from a very young age, and I'm sure just growing up in the Roosevelt family and hearing how prestigious your family is, mm-hmm. you have to know that like your dad's the guy and your grandpa was the guy. Like yeah. they're very, they're very
1: admirable people that you always want to follow. Okay. So he's born October 27th, 1858 in New York city. He's the second of four children. Dude, of Yeah, you had to have known because their houses are all like the old like brownstone buildings Mm -hmm. that you see. Their house was in a location that when Abraham Lincoln had gotten assassinated, the parade through New York for Lincoln's memorial service passed by their house. And there's an image taken of young Theodore Roosevelt Jr. And his cousin standing next to his cousin looking down out of the windows. As Abraham Lincoln's, like, casket is, you know, pulled by on, like, horse-drawn carriage or something. Exhibit A. That's for got Gump. foreshadowing of that. <laughs> Could be. I wonder,
0: I, I don't think at that age he knew really who it was, but I'm sure it was something that stuck in his mind for when he does start learning and going into, like, studying history.
1: He sees the guy, he's like, oh, shit, I saw that guy's funeral. I think he probably had a more of an understanding. I think we also have to remember at this time that like you're an adult at a much earlier age than we would consider people to be adults now, not legally, but just with your responsibilities. Um, And legally (laughs) at the same time, when you do have his father, Teddy senior was like a staunch, not unionist, but whatever you would call whoever was on the side of the union during the civil war. He wanted to fight, but his wife, having family in the South, was like, "No, you're not going down there because what are the chances that you're in command of soldiers that kill one of my family members like we're not, we're not even going to go there and I, so, I feel like that's a very far off chance <laughs> it It's still maybe in his wife's logic any contribution he's making to the war to kill people that she knows or family members is is too much for her so she's just like we're gonna nip that
0: well i got an argument against that too though because what did teddy do instead of going teddy senior he hired proxies to go (laughs) fight for him yeah so what happens if one of teddy's proxies shoots one of her family members that's his loophole
1: his loophole was the proxy he's like fine i won't go but i'm paying some guys to go for me and she's like fine
0: you think when they did that like you got to take his picture and put it on his military ID or like his dog tag said Teddy Roosevelt Sr.
1: If lost, please return to Teddy yeah, Roosevelt well, Sr.
0: Yeah, just to know
1: like your
0: proxies there is you. Was sponsored by Teddy Roosevelt. Uh-huh. And, like, sponsored by them just <laughs> wear like patches on their fucking uniforms.
1: <laughs> um, so when he was born, he was essentially was a sickly kid. There's so much emphasis on this that like born a sickly boy with asthma. I actually have. I was going to say, don't you? Yeah. So I'm not going to lie to you, but there's certain aspects of the Teddy Roosevelt individual in regards to like the physical health and things like that that I can really associate with. I didn't have asthma to the degree he did. I didn't wake up like gasping for air and all that kind of stuff. Like I had to keep an inhaler at like soccer games uh-huh. in case I was breathing too hard.
0: So your asthma wasn't fixed by potentially smoking cigars. Um, being driven around the streets of New York with your head out the window to push the
1: New York air into your lungs i can't claim that that's what <laughs> cured it it's non existent I guess you have it for life, but i haven't had any issues with it like since I was fifteen. The other part though that I can identify with is being a smaller kid and essentially like building up his body as a means to like almost build up his confidence
0: well and, uh... His confidence has to be at an all-time low because he had overheard Theo, Martha, and the doctor talking about the potential for him not to live.
1: Yeah. Like <laughs> a kid hears that and he's like, what was the, what you guys talking about? Like, oh, nothing.
0: Yeah. His mortality. Christmas <laughs> His mortality at a young age was questioned to the point where I think he thought for the rest of his life, like, hey, if I don't die from this. I can do
1: fucking anything because I just fought death and won. I do think that that was also kind of what inspired him because there's so many circumstances where I feel like he puts himself into situations where his chance of death are much, much higher than situations Mm -hmm. he had to be in. And I wonder if, you know, you don't know how stuff affects people psychologically, but if you're told up until a certain point when you're young that you're on borrowed time, but then you just keep getting more time and more time and you keep getting better, you're like, oh shit, like... Everything I do at this point is just bonus stuff that I get to do, or you know I'm going to take advantage while I have this life, and i he crams as much shit into it as he possibly can,
0: yeah, you're playing with house money essentially at that point. he starts cramming some shit in at a very early age because at the age of seven, this is all real uh, I don't know how many times I had to hear it or read it before I really comprehended that this is what happened. Oh, it's weird. Yeah, at the age of seven, he is at an outdoor market and he sees a dead seal hanging up, ready to be cut up and sold as meat. Teddy wasn't hungry for a seal that day. For some reason, Teddy came home at the age of seven with a severed seal's head.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) and they said because he was having to be kept indoors and everything like that, he read a lot. And he got into zoology, you know, around that same time. First of all, So like seal was a thing that was just in the markets.
0: I think we're in the wrong country for current day seal stuff, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's still an
1: industry. And then at the same time, Teddy's down perusing the fish markets. (laughs) Very weird. At the age of seven. Uh huh. So, yeah. So he brings it home to study it and he gets into like, he learns rudimentary taxidermy.
0: I don't. That's not a good trade at a young
1: age. As a guy who likes serial
0: killers, taxidermy at a young age is a bad deal.
1: Well, him and his cousin didn't they found something they called the Roosevelt Museum of Natural History? And yeah, they,
0: they built a bunch of shelves in his room and that was the first exhibit at their Roosevelt Museum of Natural History was just a seal's head that got cut off at the fish market.
1: I'm sure they like <laughs> boiled it and got the skull out and didn't have just a rotting seal's head sitting on this shelf.
0: I, I think that's sort of where the taxidermy comes in because he finally has a project where he has to figure out how to that's preserve funny. it. So he goes
1: around and apparently he just killed a shit ton of animals and would like taxidermy them and then just and, like insects to have them basically everywhere around the house and or in his room.
0: Tons and tons and tons of things that he killed in his life. It's pretty, I, for a guy who doesn't hunt, I was even like, holy shit, dude. Oh yeah. That's the numbers are stacker. It's impressive.
1: Um, but, Oh, but, sorry.
0: No. Uh, since his family was so rich, um, it afforded them a ton of opportunities for him to travel abroad, to go hiking. Uh, he was multilingual. I believe he spoke four languages. I think it was English, German, uh, Latin, no, because he was shitty at Latin. English, there were
1: certain languages he didn't get, and I think certain ones he picked up a little bit later in life. Yeah, in it, school, they didn't, they said there were certain subjects that he was good at, um, history, English, things like that, but then math, it was,
0: and, and he was homeschooled. He, because yeah. of his illnesses, because of his family having the means to do it, he was very good in biology. That's kind of where his passion grew from. I think once he started seeing like
1: the actual biological shit. Today we're going to be dissecting seal heads. Yes,
0: already did this one, yeah. Teach. Yep. Let's go ahead and move on. I uh, loved history, loved geography. At the same time, yeah, like you said, he was not very good um, <laughs> as far as like I think it was math and the old languages.
1: Ah, that so, would explain probably why he's not good at Latin. Probably, like, Greek and all that kind of stuff. Well, like you were saying with his travels, so they traveled to Europe, like, on tour. I guess that's what they called it when you're taking a long-ass fucking vacation. So he got to take a Europe European trip when he was 11 and also 12. They went to Egypt when he was 14. <laughs> um, during a hi- uh, uh, time when he was hiking the Alps, yeah, he basically discovered the benefits. That's when he kind of figured out, like, oh, if... I'm doing this kind of stuff. It reduces the risk of asthma because I'm strengthening my body. So this is kind of where he begins his lifelong love of, like, exercise. This is also where he first gets into trying to learn boxing. Um, didn't he end up getting, like, beat up or picked on by a couple of bullies? And then he was like, nope, fuck this.
0: Yeah, because he was a homeschooled kid. Whenever he would actually go out to play to stretch those lungs out, he got beat up by two bullies.
1: Listen, that- I'm not saying he was right, but we all know how... Public school kids or kids that went to public oh, yeah. school looked at the homeschool kids if they had to come in to take a class.
0: They it also didn't help
1: too that they were fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, it didn't help that he was extremely
0: nearsighted and had some real thick glasses on. Coke bottle uh-huh. glasses
1: is I think what they called them.
0: So yeah, just imagine an eight year old kid with coke bottle glasses that's homeschooled. He's probably not going to be the belle of the ball when he's out at the park. That's just not what's going to mm-hmm. happen. But yeah, he. He got his ass beat, and he came home, and he said, I need to learn how to box, and it followed him basically for the rest of his life. He, anywhere that he could, he, was, he loved boxing, he loved wrestling. Not to say that he was great at boxing. I think he was probably pretty tough, but I'm pretty sure he's pretty tough because he probably got punched in the face a lot. Well, when you're
1: maybe hiring people to be your sparring partner and you're Teddy Roosevelt, I don't think you're getting... You're getting. You're not getting someone's full effort.
0: I think he probably was because he was that kind of a guy. Where he probably started calling them names if he knew that they went easy. Maybe on him.
1: not this young. I think later could be definitely. Yeah.
0: And following in the footsteps of all great, very rich kids of the time, uh, he enters Harvard September twenty seventh, eighteen seventy six.
1: There was only like three schools back then, so he had to either go to Harvard. I think Columbia was one, and then he there was went to Columbia other, too. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, he's a rich kid, though. Nobody else, the, the exactly. regulars
1: yeah. aren't going to Harvard. Yeah. Well, no one was going to college yeah, <laughs> unless you're going to Harvard.
0: He got a crazy jump before being at Harvard because when he entered Harvard, he was already a published ornithologist, so a published bird scientist, mm-hmm. and he was an accomplished naturalist. Was so Was he well-versed in bird law? I think he probably had a pretty good idea of bird law. Probably spoke a little pigeon. Mm -hmm. You just never know. Being in New York, you probably spoke a little pigeon. uh, That's uh, two just super big feathers and a cap going into Harvard. Was that an ornithology
1: pun? Oh, fuck. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Mm, Yeah, no.
0: It was. It was intentional, Mm -hmm. too. But he came in already so well versed in so many different things also the fact that he was homeschooled he wasn't tethered down to like public school teaching he was able to almost expose himself to more things when he was studying Egypt and geography they just fucking went to Egypt yeah like he had that kind of a leg what up
1: I'm reading a book on the pyramids well fuck it let's just go see him you can't learn stuff from a book
0: you gotta see it, yeah and I think that really helped him out. I think Harvard, it was kind of a, an odd social time for him in the beginning. He didn't really fit in.
1: It's the first time he's having to interact with people in some type of environment, for the most part, probably, that aren't like people inside his family circle. He's getting much yeah. more of a, a broadened horizon for different types of people.
0: Well, like you were talking about, he was around a bunch of people
1: that weren't paid to be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So his dad, did you hear what his dad had told him, like, so when he was going to Harvard, he was like, here's how you handle stuff. You handle your morals first, your health next, and then finally your studies. That's the order in which you handle. He had a lot of... Teddy, had, Teddy Sr. had a lot of... I guess maybe
0: Teddy Jr. too had a lot of good quotes. Mm. Teddy Sr. has got a lot of good quotes too. There was another one that he told him when he was young about his body being weak and his mind being strong, but he needs his body to be strong to carry his mind. And that was sort of his telling him like, man,
1: He's you're got some Yoda shit. Yeah. yeah. You,
0: you need to get in the gym because you're kind of a special kid. And if you die
1: from asthma, yeah. <laughs> the world's going to be a lot you're different. You're my namesake. Uh-huh. I'm going to drop some pearls on you. Well, what happens? As you just basically stated, Teddy senior, February 9th, 1878. When Teddy junior is 20 years old dies
0: misdiagnosed stomach cancer, just a a really rough way to go. I think it was intestinal cancer, they said, but it might have been stomach cancer. They
1: knew it was some type, I think, and they just essentially did not tell the kids.
0: No, Teddy was at school. Teddy was getting an education. He was trying to become, as you said, his namesake, his lineage. He's Mm -hmm. trying to be the best that he can be. And when they actually called Teddy, he wasn't close enough at Harvard to get home by the train, so he actually
1: missed his father's final moments. That's the other thing too, thinking about this when we're, we talk about where he travels and where he goes, just from a time perspective, man, like we think about travel now as like when he let's just say when he goes to the Dakotas. It's not like he's hopping a plane and being to the Dakotas <laughs> no, in eight uh, hours, uh. and then he's just like he can come back whenever. like it is like a journey to get there that takes a lot of time and then time to get back. Like, this is at a time where everything, like, trains are probably relatively new, and it's like, oh, I'll be back from Harvard to New York, it's gonna take me six hours on the fucking train.
0: Yeah, I don't know where Harvard is in reference to where they lived in New York but I don't think Everything Harvard's was fucking close there had to be close
1: on these coast. Yeah, that's true I guess. The west at this point, the wild west was the fucking Dakotas. Yeah. So, to get home on that
0: train though, I don't think his notice could have been
1: too far in advance. That and how long did it take them to get a hold of him too? That's, like <laughs> That's what I was about to say. There were
0: there weren't phones,
1: right? Yeah, like father is dying and you get the telegraph and you're like, when was this sent? And they're like, it was sent 6 hours ago.
0: <laughs> I think this was Not only pivotal, really, for the way that he lived his life after this, Teddy Jr., but I think it sort of plays up the psychology of only really knowing his father from a young age and seeing him as a hero. For all intents and purposes, I think Teddy Sr. was a really, really good guy. Mm -hmm. But everybody has their shortcomings. And you don't really realize parental shortcomings until you're an adult. You're almost like a peer with them to kind of see like, okay, he he is a
1: really great man. You you never see the cracks Uh when you're a kid. And then when you get older and you've experienced some shit, you look back and you're like oh, shit, like, he was going through that at this point, but he was keeping his shit together. Mm. Like, he never let me know that, but he had to have been going through shit. Um, one of the things, too, like you're saying, you don't realize as an adult, I think one of the things that Teddy realizes as he started getting older is, and I don't know if he talked to his father about this or he just, didn't, I don't know if it just, don't know what I'm trying to say, but the fact that he didn't fight in the Civil War was a great regret of Teddy Sr. And so I don't know if he vocalized that or that was really known to teddy jr but that's something that he also carried was he was never gonna sit out i so i think maybe he saw that as like you know the the hole in the armor the weak point the armor for his father once he became adult he's like this is the one thing that i wasn't crazy about it this is the one thing that if i had the chance to do something different and rectify i wouldn't be like my father
0: yeah yeah, to kind of fill out your father's legacy is to serve the way that he said he to wanted complete to. complete it through uh-huh. your legacy. Yeah, because every time he told that story, Martha's like, shut the fuck up, dude. Mm-hmm. I didn't want you to
1: kill my brothers. Yeah, no shit. So he actually inherits about $65,000. Which is about two million dollars today. Crazy that inflation has changed it that much. Oh yeah,
0: that's so much money just to be left, and to hear sixty thousand dollars, that's like ah, oh, yeah, a little little sum of money, but two million dollars in today's money, mm-hmm. it's enough to live life for pretty comfortably for a very long time. He yeah? said he
1: would have lived comfortably for the rest of his life. <laughs> well, when he ends up, you know, coming back after his father's death, he ends up going to Maine for a little while, just to kind of be in nature. That was like his safe place. Was getting away from people. And just, like, challenging himself, I guess. This, I think, was less of a challenge and more of just, like, I need to get the fuck away.
0: Oh, he was climbing mountains. Was he? He was climbing mountains in Maine, and he actually met... am not sure how big mountains are in Maine.
1: I don't see Maine having... Listen, <laughs> we live in a mountainous region. Yes, Our the mountains, rocks, yeah. if you look at a topographical map, the way that this country goes, not a lot of stuff very high uh-huh. on the East Coast. So, let's, hills please oh,
0: uh, climbing hills. Yeah. But he was living out in nature with actual like guides that were taking him on these hikes. And he actually takes two of his, um, hiking guides mm-hmm. to the Dakotas with oh, him okay. to start his ranch. That's right. Mm-hmm. So he has like a, a full blown natural experience out in nature where he has these guys that are helping him do these hikes and go everywhere, but they know, He's a very rich man. They know that he comes from means, but he's keeping up with them. He's wanting to rough it. He's wanting to sleep outside. He's wanting the experience.
1: He's... Teddy's... We've called him a million different things. He's kind of a sponge. Like, Teddy soaks he, up... At some point, they're like, the fuck is wrong with this guy? Yeah. Like, if I had this guy's money, for the love of God, I wouldn't be doing this shit.
0: No. We're sleeping on Rox's pillows. He could stuff a bunch of hundreds in a bag and sleep on that. Mm-hmm. Like, he impressed people with his willingness to do things. And after he comes back from Maine, his life and his ideas about what he wants to learn and do in life change.
1: Um, He ends up like with Harvard and everything, he felt like he didn't receive a lot from Harvard. He felt like he, I'm trying to think of what the, the quote was, that it was a lot of scattered things, but nothing was ever cohesive or came together. And so I think that's kind of what, prompts him to change. Also, he started to get interested in politics because he found it to be the only way to make change. And, like, going off of his father's inspiration and everything, he had that philanthropic nature of, like, trying to help the people, and he felt that the only way to do that, to have the power to do that, was to enter politics. And so he ends up attending, I think, Columbia Law School, right? Mm -hmm. And then he... During the time that he's attending Columbia Law, he's like, well, I'm just going to get a head start on this thing. I'm not going to wait till I graduate law school. I'm just going to go and run for the New York State Assembly. And the New York State Assembly is basically the New York House of Representatives. It's the lower, ver- it's the lower I don't know what you would call it. Lower house. One. Lower house. And then you have the New York State Senate, which is the upper. But yeah, so at the age of 23, he runs for and unseats an incumbent in 1882, and wins a seat for the New York State Assembly.
0: Yeah, pretty big deal. He once he got to Columbia and really took an interest in politics. He would go to the local Republican headquarters. He would listen to speeches. Uh, he really kind of, I think, started honing his his speaking skills watching these guys at a young age or at his young age speak about politics. Uh, his father was a Republican. He joined the Republican Party. They knew that he was kind of something special. Was this at a time when the
1: Republicans and Democrats were the switch?
0: Yeah, this okay. is before the, the ideological switch. Okay. But it, it was at a time when he was young in his life. Like, college campuses always pretty much a hotbed for politics, it mm-hmm. seems like. Because
1: you're forming your opinions. You're forming your own brain. That's what you're going with the intention to do. The people going here are going to become lawyers, judges, politicians. That It's like uh, it's the minor leagues for it is mm-hmm. basically what it is. Um, one thing too, just kind of looking at it from like his perspective. Yeah. He seems relatively like young to us, but he's a fucking man at this point. Oh yeah. Like at 23, the fact that he's just like, you know what? I think I'm going to go ahead and run for, for basically Congress in New York.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, he, the fact that his first race, that his first political race that he enters, not only is it such a big thing to run for. You usually don't win your first time out. Yeah. He he struck gold his first time. He became an assemblyman in his first try into politics. Like it, it feels like the
1: door was so open that it was that easy. And it's not like he just basically like, hey, put my name on the ballot. Because he hung around essentially the Republican Party of New York and everything and became a member... He had the backing. He impressed enough people. They weren't like, hey, we're going to submit you for you know, like, like the National Congress or anything like that. But there's this seat. We can go ahead and take it. We think you have a chance. Here you go.
0: Yeah, assemblyman's not a, a super large position. But as far as state politics go, it's
1: not nothing and for, for sure. 20, and for a 23-year-old, huge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 1880, um, a little bit before that election wins, he meets this woman named Alice at uh, – Alice. Alice Hathaway Lee. Uh, he met her at school. He had kind of had this, I don't know if you'd call it an arrangement. It'll come up later um, with a young girl that he grew up with. And when he went off to college, there was always kind of that assumption that he was going to come back and marry her. He ends up meeting Alice. Alice is kind of a little bit of a wild child. She sort of brings him out of his shell a little bit.
1: And he falls in love fast. And She was a socialite. Yeah, sure. <laughs> That's, That's what it was. That's, that was a, apparently a profession back then.
0: I kind of, I don't know, 1880 Socialite, you probably heard like in the paper twice, but.
1: And at 23 years old, also writes a book, The Naval War of 1812, that basically like inspired and shaped his thoughts on the importance of naval power. So because his mom had family in the South and they were rich, they basically were like officers and she had an uncle or i think his uncle her brother was actually in the confederate navy and he was able to go down there and get like firsthand accounts and all of this information so at 23 years old he writes what is still studied essentially is p- a part of naval warfare study the the book naval warfare of 1812 like he's already a, i know he's a published author for ornithology but now also like that's how much like time and research was he doing this entire time? He's going to Columbia Law School. He's running for politics. He's doing research to write this book. He's already just like, go, 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 go. A published orth- ornithologist
0: could be like an article in a magazine or some shit like that. Not a book. That's true. A book is... it uh,
1: to still be a published bird. Yeah. Did, like- it's huge. But
0: to go from that to actually being an author of a book on such an in-depth... uh. Study Mm -hmm. of of what he was writing about, like he, it makes total sense why he's so jazzed later on in life when he becomes the assistant secretary to the Navy because he said that the book was part of the reason because
1: they were like, does this guy have an experience with, like, did you read his book? Like, apparently he does.
0: Yeah. He was good. He was very good. He was an assemblyman. I think that their life had kind of started to take shape, and he was sort of building it in the image of what he felt like his life at home was. He didn't have that father figure anymore, but at a young age, he saw a path to success in the way that he was
1: raised by his father. Well, and as an assemblyman, he basically started developing, like, his, like, staunch anti-corruption, like, policy. I guess – oh, sorry. I guess he was a dick. Did you read that? I would imagine you got to be kind of a dick to be in politics, man.
0: But, like, he was clashing with Democrats. He was even clashing with Republicans and calling people out on their shit on the floor. Early on,
1: he didn't have any tact, I think. Didn't know how to politically maneuver and how things got done. They said that he kind of, like, softened his edges and kind of honed his craft a little bit more later on. He was able to go and serve between 82 and 84 on the assembly. So he serves until he's eighty or until he's 25, And then basically in 1884, he's part of like, because essentially New York, like being the mayor or governor of New York, that was just like a requirement to be president. Mm -hmm. That was just what happened. Like you, if you got to be governor of New York, it was just like, oh, so you're running for president next. And they're like, yeah that was it was just a foregone conclusion
0: if you can govern govern
1: the most populous state in the country and you're... one of the only real developed ones even yeah. around this time and like one yep. of the major hubs so because of some shit that goes down during the 1884 election where f or teddy is actually backing like one person where the rest of the party is backing another guy there's like some political backroom deals that end up going on, and he basically just loses his taste for it. He's like, if this is what this is, fuck it. I'm out. Um, You guys don't know what you're doing. So this is when he actually takes his first trip to the Dakotas. Or actually, he had done that a little bit previous. Mm -hmm. He had taken a trip to the Dakotas and bison hunting, and I think he started a ranch there at that time, didn't
0: he? Yep. He paid, I believe it was $15,000. He went out there on this bison hunt, really enjoyed himself and was talking to this frontiersman about how to become a Westerner, like mm-hmm. how to become a, a ranch guy.
1: Now known as a Midwesterner.
0: Yeah, so, <laughs> I guess that's true, huh?
1: I want to become a Midwesterner.
0: So cattle rights or grazing rights, anything like that out in the Wild West was just kind of like, hey, if you have cattle, we're just going to open graze because like you can homestead. Mm-hmm. You can set up a, on a patch of land. You can start growing your cattle, all that kind of stuff. So he talks to the guy. He goes, how much to get started? The guy just throws out numbers like $15,000. Teddy pulls out his checkbook, writes him a check, and hands it over to him. He goes, okay, uh, what next? And the guy's like, do you want a receipt? He's like, no, I think, I think we're good. Mm-hmm. But that was the down payment to buy the cattle that then he would later have. Um, after that trip to the Dakotas the first time, he has – Probably the worst day that I can think of almost for anyone. Yeah. And it, it was uh, like he had the best day. Probably anybody could think of. that's a parent. And then the worst day that anybody that's a human could think of. It's so
1: crazy how low his low is and how high his high it like, oh, yeah. like I'm saying a full fucking life going to every end of the spectrum. You can. So, you know, during this time, Alice is actually pregnant and they're pregnant with their first kid He ends up getting a... He comes back. He's back in New York and everything. He gets um, news that she has the baby and it's a baby girl. So fucking celebrations, all that kind of stuff.
0: This is rough just based on the timing. Uh, She's born February 12th, 1884. Yep. So after that happens, uh, a couple days later, I think it was the 15th, is when all this just tragedy happens. The 12th, he just had a baby girl. He had a healthy baby girl, Alice Lee, named after um, her mother. Yeah, named after her mm-hmm.
1: mother. It just. His mom's in town to help take care of the new baby uh-huh. and everything. So he's got his mom there. Two most important women in his life are there. And two days later, after she gives birth, he, he gets a.
0: It was a telegram while he was in session mm-hmm. saying that his mother is sick and he needs to come home. Mm hmm.
1: He gets home, meets his brother at the door. His brother just basically tells him, he's like, there's a fucking curse on this house. There's a curse upon this house. And basically when his mother came up to help with the baby, she contracted typhoid. Which is crazy. How long was she there to contract typhoid? How common was typhoid that you... you get typhoid from there. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. So she ends up dying earlier that day. 11 hours earlier than well yeah so he basically his mother dies 11 hours later his wife dies
0: complications from labor apparently she'd had uh rights
1: disease it's a liver disease or a kidney disease kidneys it shut down her kidneys but it was the act of childbirth essentially was too much strain and so it basically yeah her body shut down
0: so in a span of three days, he went from having a daughter to losing his mother and then losing his wife.
1: In the same fucking day.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a a hard pill to swallow. You lose one and it's terrible. You lose two and you just there's really nothing there. What was it he wrote in his diary? He just put an X.
1: I put an X in. He said the light in my life had gone out.
0: Which is oddly similar to I think what Stalin said when his first wife died. Was it? I like I let's I, not compare these two. Okay. <laughs> Let's not
1: even make that comparison. Felt like it was close when I heard it. So, you encounter uh, immeasurable tragedy in your life. You're going to do what any other person would do in this situation. You're going to be like, So, I'm leaving. I'm heading for the Dakotas. I'm heading for the Badlands. Leaves the baby. Family. I'm not saying just like he leaves the baby. He is in no condition. To, to care for an infant? No, and how how could you? No, mentally I don't know, physically you know, or like if he how he is gonna be around kids or anything like that. But yeah, completely not capable of taking care. So he leaves his kid with his sister Bammy, so she takes <laughs> takes the kid, and he's like, if anyone needs me, don't call, I'll be in the Dakotas, and takes his exodus there.
0: I'll be out west. Which I, I mean, judging by the first way that he handled grief by going to Maine after his dad passed away, this is where kind of the theme of like where sadness and bad things happen in his life, he just finds a way to fucking as- him out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he just kind of bails, and not to say that it's a good thing or a bad thing, leaving your child at a young age, I feel is a bad thing. I feel like that's a a pretty universal deal. But at the same time, I if, if I, you, I have
1: I have agreement on that.
0: <laughs> if you're in no shape to take care of your child, you're from a family of means. You're not just leaving your sister Bammy with your kid because there's going to be nurses around and everything that. You're a very rich family. You could still be there. Yeah, you could still be there. But at the same time, he knows how to heal himself. And in 1883 was when he went on the bison hunt. Then 1884 is when he moves back there. It was a total of fourteen thousand dollars that he invested in the cattle ranch, um, and cattle was big business. It was something that he was going to try to make his fortune in, just like his grandfather did before with the land in New York. Um, Alice Senior passes, Alice Junior's with the family. He's out there. He brings those two uh, guides
1: from Maine, yeah, to out- help him to help him run it. He names it Elkhorn Ranch. I think it ends up being located in what's now North Dakota, and he. Basically, just tries to assimilate and learn everything he can to be a cowboy. To learn the cowboy way of life, he wants to completely just engross himself in it.
0: Yeah, the beginnings not good. <laughs> the no. beginnings, he wasn't too popular as far as you would say with the local ranch guys because um, he had glasses. It's not really a cowboy thing to have glasses. They're gonna fall off when
1: you're riding your horse. All that he kind of stuff. Been like a brook brooks brothers clothes yep. yeah he he, he, like he bought it buy when they have it on the mannequin <laughs> the window and be like this is the fashion in the west right now
0: yeah dude, he just bought a suit from brooks brothers to go out there and i'm sure if the hats were a thing back then he was probably wearing himself a big like brand new it's stetson
1: huh it's it's city slickers yes
0: yeah, yeah it really is this is billy crystal showing up mm-hmm. but He's in a bar one day, and I guess there's a fight that breaks out. There's a very angry man um, that must have won the fight because he came out, and he was staring down Teddy, and he goes, guy in the glasses buys the next round. Mm-hmm. Teddy kind of looks at him and smiles like, yeah, funny. That's, that's cool. Turns back around, goes back to his drink. Here's the second time. He goes, I said the guy with the glasses buys the next round. And Teddy stands up. Turns around, gives him the old one-two, a little right and a left to the chin, knocks his cowboy out cold in the middle of the saloon, and once he does that and the rest of the people that are in the saloon are like, oh shit, that city slicker just knocked out a rough and tumble cowboy, he starts to get a little street cred.
1: I was going to say, cowboys don't have professional boxing training. Mm -mm. He's sitting there, you know, cowboys are taking haymakers. Have you seen a cowboy fight? They're reaching for balls to smash each other in the head and everything. Teddy's a technical boxer.
0: He knows where to hit the beat buttons on the face Mm -hmm. to drop you real quick. And he became a very well-liked man in North Dakota. Um, After the bar fight, after he kind of starts to get a little bit of respect, he starts to almost govern the area. Um, He had a big respect for law and order and the politics that he had learned already previously in New York – He created something called the Little Missouri Stockmen's Association. This handled um, being able to split up grazing rights, being able to settle disputes between
1: two ranchers. He he wants fairness and order. Yeah. That's like his biggest uh thing. And by creating laws and governing, he's essentially taking lawlessness out of it and corruption and everything like that. Like he's he's trying to bring order to make sense of it. Exactly.
0: It just – it's so – He was just born to be president. He was born to do what he did, and after he does that, um, he becomes in 1886. He becomes like this quasi deputy sheriff, like not really officially, but like dog
1: the bounty hunter,
0: sort of. Except for I think he could carry a gun.
1: Escapes the dog,
0: (laughs) and he's allowed in Hawaii, I think. Mm But uh, in Billings County, so he's he's a legitimate sheriff, and he has such a fondness for law and order. This is maybe my favorite story. Um, this little Missouri that they've been living around um, here that a boat gets stolen, and this is like in the middle of winter, kind of the water's freezing over. There's not a lot of boats out there. And Teddy, I think it was some guy that he was working with him, Teddy's like, "All right, we got to find the boat." And he's like,
1: "Not on my river this happens." Yeah,
0: fuck you, dude. It's a river and they're in a boat. We're not going to catch them. They're going to be gone by the time we show up if we find the boat. They're going to be long gone. Mm-hmm. Teddy's like, "Yeah, we we're, we're going to figure out how to make this happen." So they travel upriver. They end up running along these three criminals that had stolen this boat. And back in the Wild West, the olden days justice was really a chunk of lead
1: frontier justice
0: not for teddy though teddy ends up arresting these three guys and marches them back into Billings County to the courthouse or to the jail and the whole entire time it took him 36 hours teddy stayed awake the entire 36 hours to keep a gun on these guys and meanwhile this whole time that they're doing this he i think was reading Tolstoy yeah
1: so, when they set up, I think they camped one of the nights or something like that. Um, Teddy was reading Tolstoy to the guys that he had arrested. <laughs> they, they were able to sneak up on him, I think is the biggest thing. And one of the guys even told me, he's like, if you didn't get the jump on us, I would have shot you.
0: It's a near miss. I mean, but he, he knew what he was doing.
1: Well, you know what? You can't account for, even if you know what you're doing, you can't account for Winter. <laughs> So in the winter of 1886 to 1887, yeah, it was kind of bad for the area. Um, there's even a name for it. I can't remember. It's the great something. The great white terror. Some probably something like that. But basically, like over I think they said it ended up killing over 100,000 head of cattle. And Teddy lost 60% of his herd. And at that point, he was just like, well, shit. You know what? Been here long enough. I think I'm heading back home. <laughs> So he packs his shit and heads back for New York. And on December 2nd, 1886, he ends up marrying the childhood friend we talked about, Edith Kermit Caro. Interesting middle name.
0: Uh, I didn't pick up on the middle name in the beginning of the research. And they go on to have five children. Uh, T3, Teddy third, Second son, Kermit. Kermit. When I saw Kermit as a name, I laughed out loud audibly. Like, it, Kermit's such a fucking funny name for yeah. a child. I didn't then put it together once I heard her middle name that he's just named after her. Mm-hmm.
1: her yeah, not the frog. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah I, I didn't the frog think it wasn't
1: around at this point. Kermit, the
0: frog, was a real thing. Uh, they had Ethel, they had Archibald, and they had Quentin. Quentin was the baby. Quentin supposedly was the favorite.
1: Alice rejoins the family. Yep. He comes back into her life, I think, when she's like three. Mm -hmm. So as soon as he's married, he brings her back in.
0: Alice Jr. is back home. And what, he left in... She was born in 1884. This is 1886. He was gone for a couple years. Yeah. Uh, Very important years, but at the same time, he wasn't gone for like her entire childhood.
1: Yes. Still Um, Still not... Preferable. No. <laughs> but again, y- going through that kind of loss, I that that could break you to the point where just like, you probably like sh- really should not be around the child. Yeah. Yeah. So who, kn- who knows what, what would have happened had he hung around. Yeah. He didn't. He's back now. We're all good.
0: Yeah. And Teddy kind of moves right back into politics. He hooks back up with the Republican Party. He was approached to run
1: for the New York City mayorship. They're like, where the fuck have you been, dude?
0: Nice mustache.
1: (laughs) Oh, and when he came back, they said he was almost like unrecognizable from a positive standpoint. He had gained like a bunch of weight Uh and muscle. He was like barrel chested. He'd grown out the mustache. His voice used to be a higher falsetto voice, and you can sometimes hear it in his speech, but because he had been like yelling at cattle and like doing all that kind of stuff, he had like a deeper, like kind of a deeper speaking voice that he could use. Oh, I'm sure. So he came back and they're like, what have you been doing? he's like, cattle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, that makes sense. C- cattle and chasing down bandits.
0: Why aren't you still doing cattle? Why? Why'd you leave the ranch? Got cold. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So cold. Well, he does get approached to run for the mayor of New York City, and he ends up coming in third. You know what? It's probably too much to ask for the guy that just got back into town to to probably win the New York City.
0: And third is respectable. I, I don't know how many people ran, but to get third for the mayor of New York City, the largest city in the United States at mm-hmm. that point in time, that's that's pretty big.
1: Um, big enough that President Benjamin Harrison ends up naming him to the uh, U.S. Civil Services Commission.
0: Yeah, he Benjamin Harrison, he had done a bunch of stump speeches and had traveled and really pushed hard for Harrison's campaign. And so Harrison... Kind of in a, you scratch my back, I scratch your back way. Moved him on to the U.S. Civil Service Commission. What, and,
1: did you see what they, I don't know what they do.
0: Um, They basically control, like...
1: The civil services?
0: Yeah, um, like the post office. Okay. Things like that. They're able to, anybody that's a government official that's in civil service, or anybody that's a government employee that's in civil service, it's basically like
1: fighting for them. So not... So he's within the federal government, but it's not a prestigious or a big post.
0: Uh, He made it a pretty big post, though, because one of his big things was he didn't like nepotism. Mm -hmm. He didn't like, uh, fuck, what is the word? Uh, Patronage. Ah. He didn't like people becoming powerful because they knew other people or Mm -hmm. because they paid. He wanted people to be chosen based on their merits. He wanted
1: it to be a meritocracy. He believed in a meritocracy.
0: and. So he pushed very hard on this civil service commission to go through and root out a lot of this patronage that happens. And it just it leads him right into becoming what he becomes because in 1894, um, T. Rowe is appointed the New York City Police Commissioner, which New York City at this point in time uh, is still a little sketchy today in some areas, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, back then, it was basically New York City. <laughs> yeah. It was basically like a. It, the mob wasn't real, but the mob was the police. It
1: was like you see in old mobster movies the police were corrupt. Yeah. There's a lot of corruption, a lot of shakedowns, a lot of like, Hey, do you need protection? And they're like, No, why would we need protection? And the guy hits the breaks the glasses, like, you need protection now. Yeah. But these were like police officers.
0: Well, and it was situations too where Teddy saw that the police were not only taking bribes, he did some pretty cool shit where he would um get dressed in like uh disguise.
1: I don't know what you do with a mustache like that as a disguise. So, I think they said that he would. So, he made friends with this guy um, that was a reporter that started using like flash photography. That was a big deal because then you could see images of the stuff. But the guy had done something about like exposure on like bad tenement living conditions. And Teddy read nonstop. He was always keeping up. Anything he could get a hold of, he was reading. If it was stuff that he liked, he would get in touch with those people because he could build himself a support base and have resources. So him and this guy end up at night basically (laughs) dressing up. And he's the police commissioner. Yeah. Uh, But in New York with so many officers, it's probably understandable that not everyone's going to know exactly what he looks like. Publications probably aren't Putting out pictures every single day, and it's not as accessible as far as information goes. So, yeah, like you're saying, he goes out <laughs> and is catching officers sleeping on the job, uh, getting drunk on the job, anything that essentially is them not doing what they should be doing. And he'll find them and then basically goad them to the point where they're almost ready to fight him. And then basically be like, ha ha, it's Teddy Roosevelt, bitch. <laughs> and then they'd be like, what the fuck? And he's like, I want to see you in my office tomorrow. And so he would routinely like catch guys doing this shit as a way to like on the streets start rooting out this fucking corruption.
0: Uh, there was a a quote that he had made. I don't remember if it was during his civil service commission times or while well, as a police commissioner, but it goes something like he wanted the farmer and the electricians. Probably not electricians because I don't know if they had electricity, but he wanted the farmer and the like carpenter's children to have the same advantages as all the rich kids. Yes.
1: He was very much about public service. He, had, his father had instilled in him that like the greatest thing that you can do is public service.
0: Yeah. Because you're, uh, you're helping the world. Mm-hmm. And while his father did that financially, Teddy knew uh, financially he could still probably swing it, but finances weren't changing things. He needed to go
1: into action. Exactly. And well, Speaking of action, I have to take some bathroom action.
0: Okay. Right.
1: Oh my god, Adam. What is what is that up in the sky? It, It's a bird. It's a plane. It's socials. socials! Oh my god. It's faster than Instagram. That's historically high pod on Instagram. More powerful than X? It's historically high historically HI on X? able to leap tall threads in a single bound. Back to Historically High Pod on Thread. And I mean I guess there's still
0: Gmail, right? We got that too. That is Historically High Podcast at gmail.com.
1: All right guys, back to the show. All right, back to the action. So he's serving as the New York City Police Commissioner. Uh he's walking the beat and he does that for what? Like 2 years.
0: Yeah, and in the Uh, yes, it was. I think at that point he was a very good commissioner and a lot of issues that stemmed from him being such a good commissioner was there were palms that weren't being greased. Mm -hmm. There was a rule that, uh, bar or saloons, saloons call back to the, uh, prohibition episode Mm -hmm. weren't to be open on Sundays.
1: And the work week at this point was six days, with <laughs> Sunday being the only day off. <laughs> and guess what? If you're working six days, you want to fucking drink.
0: Yeah. I, and mostly men. Um, that this was a place where they would meet. This was also a place where they would talk politics. And the Republican Party feared that if Teddy enforced this law that it was going un-lawed, unenforced. Yeah, unenforced.
1: It, uh, a very unpopular thing him doing that, people are going to be like, well, let's see that guy's Republican. They're fucking up our Sundays at these saloons. Then when they do get to talk in, it's about how much they don't like the Republican party because of this shit.
0: Yeah. And it's something that really scares these Republican heads because they need as much groundswell support as they can, because they are already working with the big corporations. They're getting their votes. They're getting their money and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, money doesn't always win elections you actually need people to go out and vote so you need to be popular in their eyes um they weren't too pumped when teddy brought down this ruling that these places had to be closed and they pushed back they rebelled they they kind of went nuts teddy rolled at the punches pretty well he's like yeah i, I know I, i'm not a fan of this either but he's like this
1: is just the law it's that that's what it is they mentioned that like he would not like confront people, but like when he would go out for like briefings or like press conferences and stuff, he knew people were pissed off about it. And he would actually even like poke fun at himself. That was like one of the things he would do is he would be like, I know it sucks. I'm sorry. This is the law. Like part of my job is the police commissioners to uphold the law. And I know you're going to hate me for this. But basically he was trying to, in a way, as much as he possibly could, trying to like endear himself with the public. He always had a good public reputation, whether people agreed with him or not, I think.
0: Yeah, he just tried to take the piss out of the situation. Um, yeah, that he's, he's in there for two years. Um, then we run into the presidency of William McKinley and much like he did with Harrison, he was out giving speeches. He was really pushing hard for Harrison, the exact same way that he had, or with, or for, uh, McKinley, the exact same way that he did for Harrison. Uh, William McKinley, I think was a decent president for, How long he was in? I
1: cannot confirm nor deny that.
0: Yeah, we'll have to do some looking into McKinley. (laughs) He wasn't popular with everybody. (laughs) Uh, Apparently not. Well, yeah.
1: (laughs) We're going to see that firsthand. Well, what do you get if you're out there, you know, drumming up support and you're doing a great job at it? You get an appointment. And this time, Teddy scores himself basically what would be considered like his dream job. Yeah. As the assistant secretary of the Navy. And that's in 1896. Well, In 1897, the actual secretary of the Navy, John Long, was kind of like an absentee in an absentee position. Um, He kind of did more of like the public stuff. But when it came down to like the nuts and the bolts of actually like policy and stuff like that, the decision making, Teddy was like, you know what? Why why are you bothering yourself with all of this? This stuff is stressful. Let me handle the paperwork. And basically uses that time to like build up the naval strength. He ends up. He understands, and I think this is one of the things that's, you know, he's a complicated person. You can't say that somebody is 100% a, a good person. So he does have these kind of weird things about him where he's a naturalist, but he's not a warmonger, but he thinks that we need a war. Yeah. He thinks that there's something about a war that shapes a nation and that, like, galvanizes a nation and that, like... And of course, if you win the war, you establish your nation's strength and you tend to get stronger. But he felt like America was due for a war. I don't know how much you should really be banging the war drum, if we're being honest, when you're like, I don't know, what are you, 30 years removed from the Civil War? So you were, so like, hey, I know we were all trying to kill each other during the last one. I promise the next one, we're all going to get together and we're going to try to kill somebody else.
0: I think part of it, and this is just a a personal theory, was, like you said, Teddy built up the U.S. Navy because he was a student of history and he saw that all the great world powers in history all had very strong navies.
1: That was like the common denominator.
0: And and so I think maybe him beating the drum against the Spanish being so close to America and in the the Western Hemisphere, I think that maybe... he looked at what he did with the Navy, and he's like, I want to test this out.
1: He, I don't think he was the kind of guy that he's like, well, I'm not going to go ahead and start a fight, but if a fight happens, mm-hmm. I'm definitely not going to try to get us out of this fight.
0: I'd like my Navy to run a scrimmage against the Spanish and see how we can do it because Spain, traditionally in naval power, yeah.
1: Yeah. Like Spain was one of the old world powers at At this point, you know, America is like an industrial powerhouse, but I think they had like the ninth largest Navy. Mm-hmm. And that was the big thing is he's like every country that is able to project power has a Navy. So that's why he ends up building that up. And with Spain, Spain was, I think the closest that still had, you know, um, held colonies and everything. And it was Cuba, yep. the, Span- the Spanish were still in control of Cuba and so he's like, well, I mean, I guess they're the closest. This gives us the best option to win if we end up going to war with them. And plus, if we end up beating Spain in a war, like, you know, that's going to be a, a little feather in the cap. i yeah. just beating like an established world power. We're going to be the new kids on the scene. We're going to show people that we mean business. I just think he was too, too willing to have that mindset. And too, he, he was too quick at that opportunity arose. He was just like, yes, let's go.
0: Yeah, I I think he might have even pushed the envelope a little bit to make it happen.
1: Well, they end up sending the USS Maine, which is like the newest battleship Mm -hmm. in the United States. They end up sending it into Havana Harbor. So I don't know what you're really trying to do. It wasn't in there to like go ahead and start the war or anything. It was just there. And then lo and behold, what happens while it's there is on February 15th of 1898, the U.S. Maine explodes. So
0: the U.S. Maine was there because uh, McKinley, not wanting to start a war, does the logical thing that a president would do and realizes, yeah, Spain has this hole in the Caribbean. The Caribbean's close to us. We would like the Caribbean. He sends them down to have some diplomatic meetings with the Cubans to try to figure out – or Giant with Spain. gun
1: diplomatic meetings. <laughs> yeah. It's not uh, – you. why did you sail down here in a warship? It, it gets better mileage. Well, it's, it's brand new. It's the most reliable vessel we have. We're not trying to say anything.
0: If you're going in for negotiations, though, you'd rather be wearing a suit than basketball shorts, right? Yeah. So I you, don't know.
1: Would you rather be wearing a suit than basketball shorts? Than not me personally.
0: Okay. Basketball shorts would be the way to go. Yeah. But he he wants to do this the right way. So they send the USS Maine down there. Like you said, the USS Maine explodes. Um uh, immediately Teddy's like the Spanish and then
1: he's a Spanish plot. <laughs> and as he's twiddling his mustache, well, uh, and of course, what's the first thing, you know, there is news at yeah. this point, news publications, everything. So the most obvious thing that they're going to jump to is this is, was done by the Spanish and publications start releasing, you know, basically blame on mm-hmm. the Spanish before any type of investigation is done.
0: The investigation's done. The investigation concludes that their best guess was there was an explosion in the hull of the ship, and that's what sunk it, which would lead you to believe that somebody probably didn't sneak on board this USS uh, ship and plant a bomb. It was probably just something that went wrong on the ship. Mm Mm-hmm. The official determination that the U.S. went with was it was caused by a mine that was sitting in the harbor. I don't know how you would why you would mine your own harbors.
1: I mean, you, if for defensive purposes, you mine everything except of a specific channel that only you know.
0: Yeah, but what was who are they trying to defend against?
1: I don't know. That's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah, but so very questionable. Um, You needed (laughs) you needed to bring something up because if they're like. Well, hold on a second. There's a ton of eyewitnesses when it blew up. There wasn't a Spanish ship anywhere that could have fired Mm -hmm. upon this. There was nothing even close to it. And they're like, huh, interesting. What is something they can't see that could have caused it? It was a mine. There must have been a mine in the harbor.
0: Could have been near the hull of the ship.
1: Yeah, they didn't have torpedoes.
0: Yeah. So um, that gets everybody a little hot under the collar back in the United States. Teddy is pushing for war. He's he's trying to make it happen. Um, again, McKinley's like, "Yeah, we should probably talk this out. Um, well, McKinley is trying to do that. T-Row bypasses McKinley and Long and sends out um, orders and directions for several of the Navy vessels to prepare for war.
1: He starts building up the fleet. He starts yeah. like, commandeering like, yachts to arm them he even sends part of the fleet to the Philippines. And you're like, why the fuck would you send your fleet to the Philippines? Cuba's right there. Spain also had held the Philippines mm-hmm. and through, I, I don't know how you think about this. If they were going to go ahead and pull S- Spain into a war in Cuba and they didn't up winning. Well, then they're just going to go ahead and take the Philippines as well. Spain's in no position to retaliate. They've, just sent all their guys to Cuba,
0: yeah, I'm sure there's probably a little bit of something too where wait a second. The Philippines are on the other side of the United
1: States. They're on the west coast, yes, he sent them all the way around.
0: Why wouldn't you send them like halfway between Spain and Cuba? Because wouldn't you want to cut off their reinforcements coming down to it try wasn't to... It about
1: cutting off their reinforcements. He's doing it so they can take the Philippines. Because what would happen is if they were just to send a fleet to the Philippines with nothing happening in Cuba, Spain's retaliation would be to send their fleet to the Philippines to then get, you know, to essentially repel the invaders. Okay. If Spain is already sending their fleet to fight Cuba, that's the complete opposite direction of the Philippines for them the philippines all they have to do is then take over the spanish that are already there there's no backup and by the time spain could respond they're pulling all their troops back you're already established there
0: so it's sort of like watch my right hand while my left hand slips into your pocket pretty much okay it's um
1: clever clever girl
0: yeah it's a a crazy thought that the assistant uh se- yeah the assistant secretary of the navy Could be the guy that sends the order to prepare for war like that. That doesn't have to come from the president or the secretary of war.
1: It's not a declaration of war. He's just sending them in a staging. Yeah. Stage and a hold. He's not technically there's nothing technically against the law of sending something somewhere to not do anything. But then once you do declare war, if they happen to be a lot closer to that place, that's just more convenient,
0: easier And McKinley's diplomatic solutions, his peace talks, failed. And he basically told Congress, let's get it on. Congress declares war on Spain. And pretty much right after that happens, you see Teddy dancing a jig in his office. And like, what's going on? He's like, I quit.
1: (laughs) I quit. I did it. I I did it. He's like, what do you mean you quit? He's like, well, between me and you, I've already given us a ton of new ships. Yep. I've already sent them to, oh, by the way. We have ships near the Philippines, so when this thing ends up kicking off, (laughs) we're going to be set over there. But you guys aren't going to let me go and actually fight in this thing. And that was, again, being the big regret of his father's life. If Teddy is going to go to war, Teddy is fucking going to war. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, yep, peace out. Um, but if I could ask you for a small favor, I would like to create the first U.S. volunteer cavalry regiment (laughs) so we can fight in this, uh, newly dubbed, was it the Spanish American War, right? Yep. Yeah. I tried to say American Spanish. That just sounds weird.
0: Sort of. If we started it, we should have probably gone first.
1: (laughs) So he ends up creating what are going to be known as the Rough Riders. And he's able to... Because of his reputation, he recruits. I think they said they got 6,000 applications to volunteer for this. And he ended up getting people from like Harvard athletes, the top two tennis players in the United States, which is crazy that tennis was going on in the United States at this point. I think collegiate players. Yeah, ended up signing up um, to go. He was getting people from all different walks of life. He had some Native Americans that were signing up.
0: Confederate Um,
1: general Confederate generals. He was going to essentially like where he had been in the Dakotas and he knew of people he's basically creating because it's a cavalry. He wants people that know how to ride horses and are essentially good at survival and all that kind of shit. So he's like, I've been meeting people like this my entire life. It's time to fucking team up.
0: (laughs) He's creating the super friends
1: (laughs) pretty much. And so he ends up personally training the regiment. One thing that I do admire, amongst other things with him, is that he knew his limitations and he knew what he knew. So he did not know how essentially to command. He did not know he did not have battlefield experience or anything like that. So he ends up getting in touch with one of his friends that had served as like a colonel or something Mm -hmm. during the Civil War that had worked with Cavalry. He's like, You're gonna be the colonel. He's like, you're gonna be the one leading this. I'm gonna be your second in command.
0: Wagner, I wanna
1: say, was that his name? I can't remember.
0: Uh, yeah, he he knew that he couldn't be the one with the reins to guide this brand new cavalry that they've created. But he knew people that knew people that knew how to do this or he knew people that knew how to do it. So He's he the can facilitator.
1: go Yeah, he it, puts everything together. He's the producer. He's making everything happen behind the scenes.
0: He still created the Rough Riders, but he needed somebody better than him to lead it. At the same time, All the piss and vinegar that Teddy is filled with
1: is enough to get these guys jacked up to go to war. Here's the other thing, too, is it's almost like a weird, like, marketing-type move as well, because Teddy Roosevelt is forming the Rough Riders. It is known, it's not known as, here's the point, we don't even know what the fuck that colonel's (laughs) name is. Yeah. And we probably heard it during our research, but all that stands out is Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. He didn't have to be in command. He ended up being able to do things where he did command men and everything like that that we're going to get to. But had it gone bad, that would have been on Teddy as well, that the roughness yeah. failed. His name is tied to that. So he's giving himself the best opportunity to succeed and step back and be like, I'm still going to get, I'm going to take advantage of this guy that knows what he's doing because I'm still going to get every single bit of credit. It's Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. So I'm saying it was like almost like a selfishly strategic move as well.
0: Well, selfishly strategic in the form of that they had, like, I want to say it was three, like, stenographers that came down and would essentially, like, I guess they were probably reporters, but they would do, like, an expose on Teddy's Rough Riders. He
1: basically had embedded reporters Uh and journalists that were there with him, along with, like, what, 25 pairs of glasses because he couldn't see shit without his glasses. That, like, that, that was how many he took? Anywhere. He would have a ton of glasses. He even had <laughs> pairs of glasses sewn into clothes of his to where if something happened and it broke, he could, like it like fucking Batman, he would just reach over and just, like, a fucking pair of glasses would come out.
0: That's awesome. It's like a, a jockey with his... Um, the goggles? Goggles, yeah. yeah.
1: So the Rough Riders um, end up training in San Antonio. They end up going to, I think, Florida... And they're basically waiting to go over to Cuba and orders end up coming in. Like there's a, uh, there's like 20,000 troops getting ready to go. Not all riders. That's just one essential like company or yeah. something like that. And so they're all waiting and there's only enough ships to get 16,000 over. And there's like other cavalry regiments Teddy takes a blank piece of paper and just basically walks up to whoever is like letting troops on the boat and just waves it to him and he's like this is giving us authorization to do that it's Teddy big personality the guy probably knows who he is and the guy's just like okay so like he gets the rough riders or as many of them as they can take onto the boat and then basically just gives the finger to the other cavalry regiments be like we're already on board you, I can't unpack my guys we're already here we'll take care of it you guys hang out you catch the next one this
0: is why I think that Teddy was in this for purely selfish reasons, is they're a cavalry, so they're all mounted on horseback. One of the big things was they didn't have enough room for soldiers, to carry more soldiers, so they definitely didn't have enough room for a volunteer cavalry's horses. Yeah, if
1: you have only have room for sixty, that's not like 16,000 and 16,000 horses. Uh-huh. It's like, this is the, I'm sorry, A horse can't fire a gun. So if the choice is between a guy and a horse, (laughs) infantry can still march. They're leaving the horses. He only, he was like, can I at least get the horses for the officers? And they're like, yeah, of course you can get the horses for the officers. Oh, you mean
0: the important guys? Yeah, we'll go ahead and give you guys your horses. The
1: cavalry then becomes the foot cavalry at that point. (laughs) It basically goes from cavalry to infantry for the most part. Um, But they do end up going over to Cuba. Um, The the big thing that Teddy's known for during the Spanish American war is the charge up, um, is it kettle Hill, kettle Hill. And what was the other Hill too, that it's more widely known by?
0: Um, I thought it was just kettle Hill. Oh, it might be because their first point of battle that they were in was called the battle. of Las Los Cosimas. And, um, they, one ended- Hill. Oh, San Juan Hill. That's what it is. So, Americans probably call it Kettle Hill. Cubans are probably like San
1: Juan Hill. I remember hearing this. Kettle Hill, essentially, was a hill next to San Juan Hill. And the action took a lot of the action that he's famous for took place on Kettle Hill. And then they went up and took San Juan Hill. The reason they needed to take those hills is because those overlooked Havana. And the entire fleet for the Spanish was in Havana. So if they could yeah. get, get those positions, they could then bomb and fire artillery. Establish high ground. Yeah. So... At this point, yeah, the charge up Kettle Hill and basically what was the Battle of San Juan um, basically cemented the legacy of the Rough Riders.
0: Well, uh, before uh, Kettle Hill, this uh, Las Cosimas battle that they fought, they did fairly well, and it really got Teddy and the Rough Riders confidence up because they had actually pushed through the Spanish resistance and they forced them to abandon their position. Uh, that's sort of how it comes across in reality. It was Teddy's group of guys and then all of the regular soldiers that came with them. So it's sort of like you have your big brother behind you and you're the little brother that's running in front Mm. and you see all the Spanish end up abandoning their positions. Like, yeah, we did it. Like, Yeah. Oh, there's a bunch of guys behind mm-hmm. us, too. Hey,
1: guys, we did it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it really built up this Rough Riders' confidence and built up Teddy's confidence that they were able to do it. Not really understanding that it wasn't just the Rough Riders' might that pushed them off their position. It was the mass amount of
1: people behind. Well, during the charge-up Kettle Hill, and again, I don't know. Historically, you do have to go ahead and take things with some you know, some grains of salt. Um, he said that they were getting ready to charge and they were kind of being pinned down because, again, they're going up a hill. They're not in the strategically advantageous position. And as they're going up, like they announce a charge. Teddy starts going, and as he turns around... Again, he's also on a horse, so he's moving much faster. By the time everyone figured out what was going on, he was already 100 yards like up the hill, and he's also on a horse yep. being a bigger target. And at this point in warfare, you're not like... So, the guys on the horses are the least important guys, right? Right? No, yeah, no, the, no. They're, they're the most important guys. So, I'm, everyone's just focusing fire on, on Teddy.
0: Yeah, if you take out the leader, nobody else is going to have any direction. I'm sure that these guys were probably vain enough to, like, wear medals and shit that was shiny into battle that was probably easy to he tell. He gets the
1: rough riders together. He's like, okay, guys. So, when we're talking about this, remember... I was a hundred yards ahead of you guys uh-huh. paying attention. And then you guys all caught up. So I was out there in the danger and everything like that. He's like, yeah, but Teddy, you were like maybe 10 yards, 15 yards ahead of us. And then we all came up behind him. he's like, was I, was I though <laughs> the guys like, Nope, you definitely were a hundred yards. That's there. right. That's right. And they have these embedded reporters that are just sending back when they come back and they report on the exploits of the rough riders. They're nationally known and famous. That's why we still know them today. Well, and, that in DMX,
0: yeah, that too. That's R-U-F-F-R-Y-D-A-S-O. though. Um, but the fanfare that he got from going over and conquering Kettle Hill was huge, and one we of the win, yeah. Yes. So, so right.
1: I mean, so there's that too. So you're also on the winning side, which then you can claim. Well, we had a big part in that,
0: and the the change that it made for Teddy's life, he had actually called it the great day of my life. Like that's for everything that this dude's done. The fact that he referred to it as a great day in his life is probably a pretty big deal. Um, the book that came out after it was like Teddy and the rough riders, something like that. Excuse me. Uh, was published and it sounds like a porn Teddy and the rough riders, <laughs> Teddy and the barebackers. they, One of the people that was reading his book, he was, I think he was a columnist or something, he must have been a critic, had written this little piece about it, and it said, from all the times that Teddy was referenced, it should have been called, like, uh, My Vacation in Cuba, Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of Teddy and the Rough Riders. Because the Rough Riders were very minimal. Yeah, and... Uh, Teddy ended up seeing it and wrote this guy a letter and said something along the lines of, I regret to inform you that my wife and friends in my circle agree with what you think the book
1: should be titled. Yeah, they think it's hilarious. By the way, if you want to come visit me next time you're in New York, look me up.
0: Yeah, so he... He sees wit, and he sees other people's great qualities, and he's like, "Yeah, I I can take the piss out There's of this. A thing, I not can." Not in
1: threatening way either. Like this was funny. Like I'll take you out to dinner or something yeah. like that. Like I'm not going to kick your ass.
0: Yeah, like I don't like that you said that about me. Good line.
1: Well, still, I mean, he's riding high on public opinion. People love him. So after leaving Cuba in 1898, he ends up entering the New York, and I every time I see this word, I love it. The gubernatorial gubernatorial race um, campaigning <laughs> on basically his everyone's war boner for him. And he won the vote for the, and this was the governor of New York? Yep. Governor of New York. He won the vote by 1%. And basically his position and everything like that, kind of the cornerstone was this thing called the square deal. And it was basically just his belief in like honesty and transparency in public affairs and making sure that I think the way he phrased it was that like, I want everyone to get a fair hand or like playing in a card game, everyone's mm-hmm. going to get a fair hand. What you do with that hand is completely up to you. But if we can all start out on a level playing field, everyone will be more successful. Which the rising tide raises all ships type thing.
0: Goddamn, is that a great message. Yeah. And especially when you're dealing with a bunch of people who probably don't feel like the government has given you a square deal in the past. And things
1: are still completely run. And that involved also like going after like corporations and things like that going after like individuals that were essentially skirting the law or taking advantage of people. Those are the people technically he kind of comes from, but those are also the people that are really in power that are, you know, the funding behind a lot of these politicians.
0: Well, and there's a back at this point in time, and I guess maybe not a whole lot has changed, but rich people weren't really involved in politics um, it was more rich people were paying people to benefit them with the policies that were being made. Like how he hired the
1: soldiers to find them. So it was Yeah, it, they were basically proxies.
0: proxies. Yeah. And so for somebody who was of means and of a higher class to start taking on these um, uh, civilian, I
1: guess... Puppet, puppet masters.
0: Yeah, he's,
1: he's becoming the thing that rich people run he's becoming a politician he also doesn't need them no like other politicians need them and everything he doesn't need them because he still does have his own money
0: so he immediately just starts attacking these corporations which scare off the republicans because these republicans have to answer to these overlords of these rich people and republican leadership's like he's doing a lot of shit in the biggest state in the country, maybe we should
1: figure out something else for him to do. Which is also the expected stepping stone for the president. Yeah. Uh, Governor of New York, if he's already doing this stuff as Governor of New York and he's going against uh-huh. essentially kind of the status quo, that really does concern, so they're like, well, fuck, we gotta try to find some place to put this guy where we can basically limit any of the damage he can do. So where do you put a guy like that? I... Somehow... I don't know. Maybe is it still kind of true?
0: I don't know. But... They're like, hey, man, you should probably try to run for VP with McKinley.
1: Well, in November of 1899, or is that 1894 or 1899? 1899. So in 1899, Vice President Garrett Hobart ends up dying of heart failure. And so lo and behold, it's like a spot opens up where they can be like, you know what, Teddy? Why don't you become the vice president? It's, It's almost like a... It's a backhanded compliment. Oh, yeah. They know that it's a role that's less powerful than governor of the biggest, you know, wealthiest state in the country. And they're putting him in a position where they're like, but look, it's the vice president where the Mm -hmm. title may seem like it's more, you know, illustrious. But essentially the control he has, they're just trying to, like, get him out of the way.
0: It's like getting an honorary degree. You're not going to be able to do anything with it, but you do
1: have it. You have that title. And look at it this way, too. So they put him in as vice president. When it comes time to go ahead and for the next election, they can just choose a different running mate for McKinley that's in there. Yeah. And then there's already another governor of New York. It's not like they never expected, and we're going to get to what happened, but they never expected this to turn into the presidency.
0: I think that they took the risk, though. I think that was the deal, was him being VP was like kicking the
1: can down the road. No, no, that's what I'm saying. So by putting him in the VP... They didn't expect anything to happen to McKinley. When McKinley then needed to run for reelection, he could choose a new VP candidate to run with him. It didn't have to be the same. It didn't have to be Teddy. But by the time that that happened, he would have already had his role as the New York governor filled, and then Teddy doesn't have a place to go. I think a VP
0: is almost set up more just looking historically how it works, though. I think VPs kind of were like the next logical stepping stone. Like, if you were a good president... And your VP decided to run after you decided Mm -hmm. not to
1: run or challenge you as the incumbent? But he wasn't going to have the support of the Republican Party. He had to have the backing to run. They're putting him in the VP position with the hope that McKinley is not going to end up dying, which then puts (laughs) Teddy into the presidency. They were just basically being like, we can just put him on the shelf here until the next election, and then we'll replace him with a VP that's going to be more of the Republicans taste. So the thing that they were doing is they were parking him there because they didn't think anything was going to happen to McKinley and they wouldn't have to worry about a Teddy president. Uh, I think it wouldn't matter. I think him
0: being VP and being as lambastic and crazy as he was, mm-hmm.
1: he was going to eventually try to challenge for the presidency. He would, but what if he didn't win essentially the party nomination, he would have had to run as a third party and third parties weren't a thing. Uh,
0: in a few years, they would be they, they because would of him. Be, but
1: at that time, it was something that they weren't really afraid of. But anyway, we're, we're focusing too much on that. Well, Teddy was reluctant to actually take the VP position as it was mostly a powerless position. But basically, he accepted the nomination at the 1900 Republican National Convention. And basically won the election and took office in March of 1901. So now you got McKinley with his VP, Teddy Roosevelt
0: uh what is that march 1901 to september 1901 half year run as the vp he's presiding over the uh i believe it was the house And he only got to preside over the House for like three weeks before they took a recess. Mm -hmm. So he really didn't even get to like do the one thing that the VP is supposed to do is provide over the House of Representatives. Oh, so
1: it's like that. Yeah. Oh, so it's like that. uh,
0: He clearly was very, very bored with what his position was. And he was kind of bummed about being the vice president. Uh, The reason that September is so important is uh, McKinley was still out trying to, I guess, maybe ingratiate himself, maybe try to set himself up for re-election, anything like that. Uh, He decides that he wants to show up to the 1901 Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. He wants to give a speech.
1: It's the World's Fair, right?
0: Yeah, Pan. Yeah, it's like a, I think, not the World's Fair, but Pan America's Fair. This isn't Pan America.
1: We did an episode on the World's Fair. How do we not know this? Well,
0: there's World's Fair, but then there's also like, America's oh, okay. together have their own fairs. Okay. Like, Europe and everybody else isn't invited. Gotcha. It's just kind of our deal. Uh, McKinley gets up, gives a speech, and then goes to shaking hands. I don't know why he'd want to do it as a president. I doubt that you can just go up at a World's Fair and shake the president's hand nowadays. I don't
1: think you can. He basically, the Secret Service is like, yeah, we don't think this is a good idea. And he's like, no, I'm going to meet and talk to people.
0: Yeah, so still trying to ingratiate himself with the people. Um, and there's a reason why you don't do that. <laughs> Unfortunately, there was a guy that was in there, uh, in the line. He was an anarchist. His name was Leon Kozlotskis, I believe. Um, ends up pulling out a revolver. He shoots twice. He hits him in the abdomen. The second shot misses. Is that correct? Grazed him or missed, yeah. And... Teddy not needing to be with him there was like away on vacation. Well, they still keep, you don't ever have the president or vice president in really yeah. the same place. Like yeah, Unless it's an official thing. Yeah. So Teddy's off doing his own thing. He gets a message, hey, the president's been shot. We need you here immediately. And didn't make it too far after that. McKinley dies September 14th. And Teddy becomes sworn in as the 26th president Thank at, you. I
1: believe, was 42 years old. I was going to, yep, yeah, 42 or 43, the youngest president uh, at the time was JFK. No, JFK was 45 or yep. something, right? So still the youngest president. So, yeah, so what ended up happening with McKinley, he was shot. I think he had survived for a little bit and everything, but it had turned, like, septic or gangrenous as far as the wound goes, so he ended up dying from the infection from that. So, yeah, uh, Teddy basically gets sworn in, and f- <laughs> the the thing that they did not want to happen <laughs> when they parked him in that position, lo and behold, it only took six months for it to happen.
0: Yeah, that's that seems like worst case scenario, doesn't it? That You try to shut this guy up by putting him in a powerless position. a mm-hmm. position that I had read, um, there was a quote about it that the VP's office wasn't worth a bucket of spit. I'm not exactly that metaphor confuses me, but. You go from parking a guy there that's a threat to
1: you to now that guy being in charge of you. (laughs) Yes. So that's where I think we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up at. Teddy is entering into essentially the biggest phase of his life. He's being thrust into the presidency. And, um, yeah, next week we'll figure out what he chooses to do with it and – what, what he ends up doing for the rest of his life.
0: Yeah, we still have 18 more years of Teddy Roosevelt's life to cover. Oh,
1: spoiler alert. He's, <laughs> he's not. he. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode, guys. We'll uh, see you next week for a little more TED Talk. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. yeah another edition of our TED Talk. All right, later, guys. Peace all right ladies and gentlemen thanks for joining us for another episode if you like what you heard hit that subscribe and like button follow us if you didn't like what you heard still hit that anyway because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like Um, please follow us on our social media adam hit him with it
0: our instagram is historically high
1: pod historically high pod
0: and we are on twitter at historically high that's historically
1: h i all right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.